Well, as we begin reading in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, so Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning, and from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you. Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Graduation time, I always found it interesting that it's usually referred to as commencement. If you think of the word commencement, it's not so much looking back at the past and something accomplished as it is of where do we go from here. So graduation is both of those things. It's a, it's a completion of something. But it's also looking forward. Where will you commence? Where will you continue to go on from here? For some of them, it'll be the workforce. And for some of them, it'll be more schooling. Or for some of them, it might be the military. Or, uh, but but it's, it's a new beginning. Well, as we look at it here in the Bible this morning, we look at Noah and them getting off the ark. We see a commencement of sorts here as well. We see a new beginning for Noah and his family as they get off the ark. More than that, for all of us, it's a new beginning. Now as they've landed and the waters have subsided and they're back out on dry land, God establishes with them this new beginning. And where does it start? You know where it starts? It starts in worship. Noah gets off the ark, and what does he do? He starts to make an altar. He takes these clean animals that are fit for sacrificing. It's a huge offering before God. And, and, and what is it for? I think it's for a couple things. I think obviously it's going to reflect gratitude. I think Noah's thankful for the ark. I think it also, as all the sacrifices do, point forward to something. It points forward to the redemption. As he's offering up these sacrifices, he's following the consistent example of who? Remember Abel. Abel came before God with the the innocent death 
for the guilty. For with the blood sacrifice, he came before God and he was accepted before God. Whereas Cain came before God, it was not a blood sacrifice and it was not accepted before God. And so we see this sacrifice that, uh, that speaks of the atonement, the, the bloodshed to pay for the sins of the people, to cover our sins uh, up until the time of Christ, and then Christ's atoning sacrifice that would take away our sins as he laid down his life for us. But as we look through this passage, I'd like to recognize three different things that God does for mankind in this new beginning. The first thing that we see in this new beginning is that God provides now, he provides a few different things. I'd start, I guess, first of all, with the sacrifice. Offering the sacrifice speaks of the atonement, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that would eventually come and pay for our sins. By God directing Noah to save seven of every kind of the clean animals, he provided for the sacrifice that would cover the sins of the people at this point. We also see that he provided for the people in their dietary needs. It's very similar to what we saw at the creation of the world. He says, look, at the beginning when I, when I made mankind, I gave you all the plants to eat. And he says, just as I gave you the plants for food now, now I'm giving you the animals for food. This is the first place, just as God says, I gave you permission before to eat the, the vegetables and the fruits. Now I'm giving you permission to eat the animals. We mentioned last week it probably has to do with the change in environment, with the things that happened during the flood. The earth is obviously under a new environment, and so mankind probably needs the protein that we get from animals, from meat now in the diet to, to take care of that. But God gives them this provision to give them what they need for their diet. Back at the first diet, there was also some restriction, and we see that here also. You remember back in when God first created them in the Garden of Eden, he told them, go ahead and eat all the plants, but there was a restriction. Don't eat from the one tree. Well, now we see God opens up the diet into eating meat, but don't eat the blood. All the way back from the beginning, there's a, there's a focus on the importance of blood. And we often refer to death as being the shedding of blood. God puts a strong value on blood. Obviously, part of it is because of that atonement. Again, it goes back to that sacrifice, the shedding of the blood of the animal. They would kill the animal, put it on the altar, burn it, sprinkle its blood on the altar, and they would burn all that before God. And God said it was a sweet-smelling aroma. That blood made atonement for their sins. And that's why I think God does that with our diet. He says, you, don't, you can eat the animals now, but don't eat the blood, because the blood is special. The blood is where our life is contained. The blood is what is offered up as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's in that blood. And so the blood was to be set aside as, as special. It was to be burnt and offered up before God. But it was not to be participated in, in our diet. And we see that a little bit. When we do get to Moses' time and we skip up to the book of Leviticus, we see if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And so God was adamant about not eating the blood because of its connection with the atonement for our sins. You know, when you get up into the New Testament, you find actually even the same thing. This is pretty consistent all the way through the Bible. When the early church first started to reach Gentiles, and Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, 
it caused a, a big disruption because the Jewish people lived very differently than the pagan nations around them. And so when you had Gentiles that began to be saved out of their idolatry, there were a host of things that they participated in that they needed to stop participating now as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so in the early church, when they first dealt with that, they said, well, what do we do with them? And some people argued, you've got to make them Jewish. You've got to bring them in, circumcise the males, make them Jewish. Then if you make them Jewish, then they can be a believer in the Jewish Messiah. And they said, is that the way to go? No, that wasn't the way to go said, God is already saving them without us making them Jewish. So that can't be it. And so they decided, well, what do we write back? As they would write to these churches of the Gentile believers that were propping up in different places. They said, what instruction do we give them? What do we tell them not to do? And they boiled it down to a pretty simple formula. They sent to them and said, you know what? As you're starting to learn your way around in Jesus Christ, start with this. Uh, no sexual immorality. Don't eat the meat that's been polluted by the idols and, and stay away from blood. Those were some things that the Jewish people up to that point and them that would have been headbutton points for them. And uh, they kind of squelched those right off the bat. So Old Testament or New Testament, there's always an emphasis on the blood because it was pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ who would take away the sins of the world. God provides. In this new beginning, that's what God's doing. He's providing. He's giving them what they need. Not only is he providing, he's also protecting. Because we see the addition of what, what is the beginning of civil government. You see, in the past, we never had anything. There was no outside restraining force on mankind. When you look back in the Garden of Eden, they were in a dispensation of innocence. There was no sinful nature. There wasn't any reason for outside interference. When they gave in to the temptation of Satan and they ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to, they fell from innocence. And then what do we see them being governed by? It looks like they were just governed by their conscience. When Cain brought the wrong offering to God, and then he gets mad that he isn't accepted and his brother Abel's is accepted, God, what does he do? He just appeals to Cain's conscience. He says, Cain, now you know if you do right, you'll be accepted. So just do what's right. If you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It wants to master you. And so Cain, what did he have as an external restraint? Nothing. Internal restraint? He had a conscience, just like we have a conscience. But you know what the problem is with our conscience? Is a conscience needs to continually be fed the Word of God because our conscience can be trained. Our conscience can be seared. Our conscience can be hardened. Or our, consci our conscience can be sensitive. In order for our conscience to work the way that it's supposed to, we need the instruction of the Word of God confirming to our conscience continually what's right and what's wrong. And as we have that in place, then our conscience remains sensitive. So when we start to do something that's wrong, our conscience kind of hurts and warns us. Just like when you touch something hot with your skin, there's nerves there that cause you pain, that cause you to recoil away from things that are harmful for you. Our conscience is exactly that. Our conscience, when it's cultivated and kept sensitive, causes us to recoil from things that are harmful to us, from things that are wrong. Cain didn't listen to his conscience. He didn't take the Word of God that was given to him at that time and, and respond to that in a proper way. And so he kills his brother rather than doing what's right. He plunges deeper into what's wrong. 
and we see his hardened conscience. Because when God comes and he confronts Cain for killing his brother, you know what Cain's response is? My punishment is greater than I can bear. He didn't break down in remorse for what he had done. He was only concerned with the fact that he'd been caught and that he was being punished. Well, unfortunately, the rest of the world continued to go the way of Cain to where Noah is really the only one worth saving when it comes time for judgment. But then after that judgment, when they get off the ark, what do we find? And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see what he add, the new thing that he adds here is what we call capital punishment. You see, the world had gotten so corrupt and so violent that there was murder happening on a, at a great rate. And, God, and so people were killing one another. And God says, now something's going to change here. Now he brings in the conscience wasn't enough to handle it. Now we're going to have an external restraint. Mankind is going to police itself. It's going to have external restraint. If one individual takes the life of another individual, then mankind collectively will take the life of that person. So what it's talking about is, is kind of what we have today. It, it judges. In fact, that's what they will end up with when you get up into the nation of Israel. They'll end up with judges and then eventually kings. And, but you end up with a process where you can try and, and you, you can find out if somebody's innocent or guilty in the taking of this life. Because not every, not every death is a murder. Right? There's, if you look through the Bible, there's obviously some exceptions. Wartime. For a soldier to take life in war is not murder. For self-defense, the Bible spells out, if you're defending yourself against an attacker and you kill that person, that's not murder. That's self-defense. And capital punishment. Why? Because God gives the authority to mankind collectively here to take the life of an individual who takes the life of an individual. You know, our country, uh, earlier on in our days, we exercise that. We're getting to the point where we exercise it less and less. In fact, I can't remember what state it was, but just a couple weeks ago, I heard about another state that was taking capital punishment off of the books. And you know what? Um, it's, it's not really too surprising because, uh, you know, if our, as our value of life goes down, if we get, as we get more and more in a post-Christian environment in our country that started out as a very Christian environment, as we get more and more into a post-Christian environment, we find our view of life diminishing. The value of life diminishes. And so it's not too surprising that we're going to get to the point where we tolerate more murder. Uh, goes right along with, I think, of, I think of the abortion industry. It goes right along with that. Look, if we're willing to kill our own infants and look at some of the legislatures now even pushing for being able to take the life of them even after they're born, then if we're, if we're to that level, then it doesn't surprise me that we're not going to stand up and protect life. Uh, in an adult version either. And, but that's really what its incentive was at the beginning. It was given by God. The authority was given to mankind collectively. In other words, it's kind of the, stat, the first establishment of human government to exercise authority, the masses exercising authority over the individual, in this sense, to protect the life of people. Why would he do that? It's because we're made in the image of God. Life is valuable because we represent God. We are made in His image. If you shed man's blood, 
who is made in the image of God, you will pay for that with your own life. There's a whole host of worldview issues in this passage that touch our day, are there not? The sanctity of human life found in the fact that we're made in the image of God. There's several in our society today that look at the killing of an animal as equivalent to the killing of a person. Every once in a while, one of our kids in release time or something will refer to people as animals. And I'm always quick to correct them in that. You're not an animal. You're made on the same day as animals. You live in the same environment as animals. So yeah, there are going to be a few similarities, but there's a huge difference between you and an animal. Where in the animal kingdom do you see them going to school and learning? Where do you see them practicing art and making music and acting out plays and writing books and recording history and, and developing homes and indoor plumbing and electricity and inventing things? We're so far removed from animals, it's not even funny. And that is seen very clearly in this passage right here because what happens? Back to back, we see God saying, now you can kill and eat the animals. Now, if you kill a person, you will die. It's not that God doesn't care about the animals. He just rescued the animals in the ark also. Jesus said, God knows about every sparrow that drops to the ground, but you are so much more valuable than a sparrow. You're on a whole different level. Because we are so much higher than the animals that are there because of the image of God that is within us, then our life is valuable and God is protecting it. Now, He protects it through us. I know, I remember back having the question myself saying, well, I know that we were made in the image of God, but then we sinned. The image of God within us has been marred, hasn't it? It hasn't been taken away. Well, the answer is no, it hasn't been taken away. It has been marred to some extent. I don't know to exactly what extent. But this passage right here, with it talking about us being made in the image of God, and that's why life is sacred for human beings, it still points to the image of God within us. And this happened after sin. So obviously we still bear the image of God. Jesus is the image of God in perfection. As we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1 verse 15 does the same thing. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Ephesians and Colossians, it makes this comparison. It says, Our old life is a kind of our old, our old man, our old person. Our life in Christ with the Holy Spirit is our new person, our new life, new beginnings. And it encourages us in both of those places to cast off the old man, that old life, and embrace this new man, this new beginnings, this new life, and walk in Christ. Well, did you know that that process of growing in our new life is a process of growing closer and closer to be a more accurate representation of the image of God in ourselves. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so the more we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, the more accurately we represent the image of God in our life. The Bible also tells us that this should be a factor in how we treat other people. Now, in, in Genesis there, in the passage that we're looking at, it dealt with it in regards to murder. Don't kill the other person because that's somebody that's made in the image of God. If you do, your life will be taken. Now, obviously, he intends our relationships with one another to be much more positive than just not killing each other. In fact, James points that out. He says, with it, talking about our tongues, he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
Those people are made in the image of God. And so we need to respect that image with the people. And I'm certain that that's why when we look through the New Testament, when it talks about false teachers that rise up and people that you would disagree with, there's times where you have to correct people and you have to point out the truth. But you know what it always says? And do it with a gentleness and respect. We need to be able to disagree with people in a kind and respectful way. But we see this protection that's put over mankind. And that's what when we see this very beginning of civil government being introduced, I, see, I think we see the purpose of civil government. The purpose of civil government is protection. It is justice to make sure that justice happens. As we see in the passage, it even extended over animals. And we see it heightened for that in, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 28. It says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. And so we see God providing even safety from animals. The fact that the punishment even went to the, to the people that owned the animal if the animal had hurt somebody before and then proper precautions were not taken. Then the owner would become responsible as well. But you know what? God provides protection. We see it on up into the New Testament as well. In the book of Romans, it's talking about uh, government and, and our law enforcement. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Human government was instituted by God. And the people that are in control in, the human, in, in our governments are, put to, are placed there by God. And so we are to be subject to that government. And he says that those institutes of government are put there for our benefit so that we can live quiet, safe, peaceable lives in our societies. I know there's been a lot of dispute uh, socially and stuff in our nation over the last few years and, and a lot of, I think, inappropriate uh, uh, stone casting. Not to say that there isn't a, uh, a bad egg in our legal process from time to time and from place to place. But overall, can you imagine living in a, in a society without law enforcement? Some of the places where the police are complained about the most in our inner cities, can you imagine what the inner cities would be like without those people on patrol? That's exactly the point God's making. He says, that's why I put it in place. He's trying to ensure that the world doesn't become what it was before the flood. But then also, lastly, we see in these new beginnings, we have God's promises. He does exactly what he told Noah that he was going to do back in chapter 6 and verse 18. Back there he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And that's exactly what he does when we get up into chapter 9. In the, in the latter part of it, in, starting in verse 9, it says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. And then in verse 11, he says, I establish my covenant with you. And then in verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I'm making. And he repeats it over and over and over and over. This covenant. What is a covenant? Covenant is basically a legally binding agreement between two parties. And that's what God... God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God because He's faithful. He's committed. He's promising this. You know, that's exactly why we do the things that we do. Why do we have marriage? Why do we enter a covenant of marriage? 
Why do we exchange vows and we have that, that license? It's because it's a covenant. It's a legally binding level of commitment between two people. And you know, every once in a while I hear somebody say, well, what do I need that piece of paper for? It's not a piece of paper. It is a legally binding commitment. And sometimes people make the argument, well, I don't need that to be committed. Well, then commit. The fact is you haven't committed until you commit. Put your signature where your mouth is. That's a commitment. Before that, you can walk away at any time. There's nothing holding you. Nothing actually binding on you. But that is a commitment. And you know what? That's exactly what God does for us repeatedly. He does it with Noah here. He's going to do it with Abraham. He's going to do it with Moses. He's going to do it through the New Testament with our final new covenant under Jesus Christ. And every time God says, I'll put my signature down there, you put yours. And we'll ratify it. Just sprinkle blood on the covenant, blood on the people to ensure this covenant. And that's exactly what God does. Now, this covenant is a little bit peculiar, and it's very awesome. The first thing that we see is that it's a universal covenant. Notice who the covenant's with. He says, I'm making a covenant with you, he says to Noah. He says, I'm making a covenant with every living creature that's been brought through the flood. And I'm making a covenant in verse 13, I think it is, uh, with the whole earth. So this is pretty extensive. God says, I'm making a covenant with man, with all the creatures that were saved through the flood, and with the earth, that I'm not flooding it again. He gives a sign of the covenant. You know what this is? This is a sign of my covenant. The day I got married, we put these on. Well, actually, mine was a single wedding ceremony because I was too poor to buy two rings. So I put one on Lisa at first, and we bought mine later. But that's what this is. It's a sign. And during the wedding ceremony, that we always point out, it's circle all the way around Showing that it goes on forever. There's no beginning and end. God says, I'm going to give you the promise of my covenant. It's the rainbow. When it rains, you see the rainbow. And you know what? That's a good thing to have. Because can you imagine, since it had never rained before the flood, and then you have the flood, can you imagine Noah over there maybe building his house or working in the garden or something, and all of a sudden he feels a drop? You'd be running for the ark, right? <laughs> and God says, look, you don't have to run for the ark. I promise. No more. No more. No more. And so uh, he gives them that sign of the covenant. That's just what, that's what we do, too, with our wedding rings. We, this is a symbol of our covenant, of our promise, one to the other. God does that. Well, God's covenant was with us, with the earth, everything on it. It's also an unconditional promise. Do you recognize that actually in this covenant... There's nothing for man to do. There wasn't anything for Noah to do. God just says, now Noah did offer the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice up to God, burn it up before God, and it does seem in response to that that God smells the sweet aroma and proclaims this covenant. But he'd already told him that he was going to make the covenant with him before. So it's not like he just decides to do it now that he smells the sweet aroma. There's nothing Noah's to do. God just says, I'm going to do this. In fact, it looks a little bit weird when you read it. Because it says in verse 21 of chapter 8, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For, so he's going to give the reason for this, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You almost read that now. You have to read it again because you're like, what? He just destroyed the world for being wicked. God says, now you know what? I'm not going to do that again. You want to know why? Because they're just wicked. I mean, if he would have said, well, because you got rid of all the bad ones, but we'll find out later that's not the case. Any other reason almost would sound better than this, but you're not going to, you just destroyed them because they're wicked. Now you're not going to do it again because they're wicked. 
Because man's heart, is, his inclinations, his, his, that sinful tendency that he has is, is wicked, is evil all the time. So I'm not going to destroy him again. The point is that he's making is God has just delivered Noah. And God, in his grace, is offering this covenant. He said, here's the covenant. I'm not going to do this again. And you want to know why? Because you can't be righteous on your own anyway. It's all on God's grace. He's just doing this out of the goodness of his heart because he wants to. He institutes it. He puts the bow in the sky. He does all of it. Mankind does none of it. And then lastly, it's a perpetual promise. How long will this last? God says this covenant lasts until the end of the earth. As long as the earth remains and just as faithful as the seasons, there's always going to be winter, summer. There's always going to be cold, warm. There's going to be planting time and harvesting time. Just as you can depend on me, this is how it's going to be. You can bank on it. Well, that's what we see in these new beginnings that God would give us. That He would provide for us in this new beginning. He protects us in this new beginning. And He enters into this promise, this commitment with us in this new beginning.